Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 59, December 2022. Exploring Roy Hart's Legacy, a conversation with Enrique Pardo and Linda Wise. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. The holiday season is upon us again. As usual, I'm offering my accents and dialects for stage and screen, deluxe streaming edition, at a discount. So, for the actor in your life, what would make a nicer gift? 27 accents and dialects in one big book with accompanying sound files. The discount is available only at paulmeyer.com or from your iTunes account if you prefer the iTunes ebook or Apple book version. And another holiday tradition my audiobook reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Available free as my gift for your listening pleasure. To listen, go to this web address, paulmeyer.com forward slash Christmas Carol. That's P-A-U-L-M-E-I-E-R dot com forward slash Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol is all lowercase and no spaces. Now, everyone's favourite, it seems. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. And I have two children. Both of them are teenagers. Lately, I'm having a hard time handling with, two, handling with two children. But I'm happy they are nice and they grown up really well. If your guess was Japan, well done. It was Ideas Japan 15, contributed by Helen Gent, our associate editor for Japan. Thanks again, Helen. The subject, born in 1965 in Toyohashi City, is an English teacher there. For the whole recording and Helen's phonetic transcription, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and just drill down to Japan. Now, this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend his formative years? Well, yeah, GeoCache, we... Um, when did we start that? It was about 2012, something like that. And the, the whole the whole point of that, to explain to you again, was we found it great because it brought you to places you would never have thought of. And even if you may, you may know an area really well, other people may know bits and bobs you don't. Get the answer next time. My deepest thanks to all who have donated to IDEA during our recent fundraiser. If you didn't get around to contributing, the Support IDEA widget is always open on every page of dialectsarchive.com. So won't you help us keep the lights on at IDEA this Christmas? It's been a free resource for over 20 years. My guests this month are Enrique Pardo and Linda Wise of Pan Theatre. Their company's winter season is in Paris, and their summer season in Malaragues, in southern France. They've spent many decades building on the legacy of the intriguing and controversial figure of Roy Hart. You may remember that earlier this year, Roy Hart's name came up in a podcast about pitch. That was episode number 48 with Jeremy Fisher and Julianne Kayes. During that conversation, I promised to delve deeper into Roy Hart's work, and this podcast fulfills that promise. So welcome, Enrique and, and Linda. Pan Theatre, I'm anglicising it. Is it OK to anglicise it to Pan Theatre? It's no ordinary theatre, is it? I mean, theatre goes to Broadway or London's West End would, would find it rather different. 
At that level, yes. Let's say it's not classical show business. We are experimental theater, yes. theater and we do experiment with uh, ourselves and with our collaborators. Mm -hmm. Roy Hart passed the torch to you, didn't he? Let's talk about Roy Hart, whose legacy you've built on. An extraordinary man from the little I've been able to glean. T tell me about Roy Hart and his approach to the human voice. You knew him for nearly a decade, I think, before he died in, what, 1973? He died in 75. Tell me the Roy Hart story. What, what was he all about? Roy Hart, you know, I insist very strongly. I, I say two things. I could be his best lawyer hmm. in many ways, which doesn't mean a lawyer agrees with the person who they are defending, but they, if they're genuine, a genuine lawyer, you know, thinks the, the person has, is worth defending and has a point. So I, I defend him very thoroughly while not agreeing because after 50 years, you can't carry on agreeing with someone's ideas of 50 years later. God knows where he would be today, you could say, at yes. that level. Yes. Uh, he, uh, for me, he was an absolutely extraordinary man, extraordinary because uh, I was speaking with Linda about, the, you, you could say, what does an extraordinary person, man, do with that extraordinariness? Most mm. of them end up grand teachers of some kind, leaders, teachers. And I like very specially the, the, the Indian word for teacher leader is a guru. Yes. I like that word. I, I defend it. It has very bad press in many, many, many at many levels, but I defend it. I, I'm very thorough about that. The man was exceptional and he wanted to share his exceptionality with disciples. I don't think he had any choice, actually, you know, in many ways. You know, what do you do with your exceptionality? And I'm happy to talk about what I think his exceptionality was about. Yes, please. Uh, I would defend him on that basis. Had he any choice? You know, being, in quotes, a superior being, you could say. Mm. He chose to share his work and lead disciples. I was one of the lucky ones. I was young. I was in my late 20s. It was exactly that, what I was looking for, not necessarily in terms of the group adventure, but in terms of this man's teaching. So I went very much for it and uh, I plunged into it absolutely for some years and it was, he called it a hermetic circle. It was a sectarian, uh, in the best sense, circle of disciples with an, um, an amazingly strong and visionary uh, leader. That, that's what I would say about Roy Hart. It so happens that he was an extraordinary actor and that he had an amazing voice. Yes. And I think he was born with that. And I think he also, he also came through an education, which I don't think people uh, inquire enough about it, which is what I would call the Talmudic education. He was Jewish and his father and his grandfather were both uh, rabbis of the cantor type. Ah. So I think he got a lot of singing, you could say from that side and a lot of psychological philosophy of the Talmud kind, you know. My first encounter with Roy Hart, the name Roy Hart and what he could do was the legendary ability he had of spanning six and a half or more octaves in his voice. So 
a lot of our listeners today won't have heard of Roy Hart at all. So as a way in, I'm going to play the same clip, the same audio clip that I played in my podcast with Jeremy Fisher and Julianne Case. We were talking about the extremes of pitch in the human voice. So this is the clip that one can go to YouTube and find of Roy Hart demonstrating six and a half octaves. And we'll, we'll start there and then, and then continue our conversation about the man himself. So here's that clip. Here is a male singer using the voice in a range of six and a half octaves. I find that absolutely amazing. Let me follow it up very quickly with another recording, a very rare recording of Roy, demonstrating every possible primeval sound he could conjure out of his voice. It has been found that the voice can express all animal sounds in existence and many fantastic sounds almost beyond the imagination of the conscious mind. Sounds from the depth of primeval life. Listen. <sighs> Linda, help me understand Roy Hart's desire to go so far beyond the limits of the conventional human voice, both in that first clip where he produces an astonishing six and a half octaves and then that even more astonishing and perhaps kind of frightening second clip where he produces all those animal sounds. Well, one of the things, I mean, very important to say is that while he was studying at RADA, he met Alfred Wolfson. I mean, if one reads his diaries, he immediately, he was a very young man. I mean, I, I'm not sure, early 20s, but he immediately said, I think I've met the, the most important person in my life today. Mm. Uh, his ideas of the voice were very based on his work with Alfred Wolfson because he decided to work with Alfred Wolfson uh, um, parallel to his studies at... Uh, at the Royal Academy. One very particular anecdote, which I think is a kind of key into what his philosophy about the voice was, he was playing the fellow. And he went to Alfred Wolfson and said, you know, I, I just feel I, I can't do this. I do not feel the wish to kill. Alfred Wolfson said, no, well, I'll give you a lesson. From, I mean, the, the anecdotes are that, that he pushed Roy very, very, very far, right to the point where he was in a fury and kind of out of himself. And he realized that he'd actually gone to huge limits, or not only in his voice, but in his actual psychological uh, being, if you like. 
in an altered state of some kind. Uh, yes, I think he was. I think he he was pushed there, and and as an actor, very conscious of what was happening as well. I mean, that is a, that is a very strong an, uh, anecdote. But why an actor like Roy Hood? from what it seems was extremely gifted and had a huge future in front of him, why he should change direction and then go to, to study full time with Alfred Wilson. And then it was very clear that he was one of the most gifted students, not only because of his extraordinary voice, because there were other students who had pretty extraordinary voices. Uh, I mean, I could bring in the name of, of Jenny Johnson, who was a woman singer and, I mean, one of Alfred Wolfson's dreams or, or visions was that he believed that everybody could sing every part of the magic flute of Mozart. And Jenny Johnston really did succeed in doing that. Mm. Her voice is extremely different from Roy Hart's. Her name was, and I mean, the recordings we have of her, of course, were a lot earlier than the later recordings of Roy. But I mean, you hear it. You hear her, her singing everything from Sir Astro to the Queen of the Night. And everything in between. Outside the conventional limits of what the human voice and human psyche can engage in, right? Yes. It shows that the human psyche is capable of doing a lot more than we realize. <laughs> Confronting this work, I see that we live within very narrow conventional limits most of the day. And I do sense that there is this vast universe of feeling and, and of vocal expression that's beyond the narrow conventional limits that, that society pins us down into. So that, that desire to go beyond to transcend, to go to that point of ecstasy, that Dionysian place is very appealing to me, even though I've I've had a fairly conventional career. But that esoteric side, that transcendental side is very appealing to me. I'm not sure where to take the, this. You know, I, I would take it from, let's say, from today. I think what Roy Hart did with the teaching of Alfred Volson and how he developed what I would call a philosophy of of what? Of the voice? Well, of voicing, I would say. Uh, what you can, and the, the big word for me is express, if you want. I think it's uh, in the best of senses, it's the best therapy that I know of for confronting limitations, for confronting the dimensions I would have of what is called human potential, quite simply. But I would say it is as an artist, I would say it is if you want to confront limitations and and those limitations aren't statistical, they're qualitative. They're to do with, you know, what we could call consciousness or something like that. A certain sense of self-control and self-knowledge. And I'm, I'm an absolute fan of, of, of that side, if you want, of, of Roy Hart's heritage. The, mm. what I would call the, in the best of senses, the expressive therapy. Your work is sort of is at the intersection of performance art and psychoanalysis. I've read, I think, somewhere perhaps you wrote that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's so intriguing. Take us a little deeper into that intersection. Where is that intersection located? Well, I wouldn't necessarily see it in terms of uh, artistic creation, except that for I'm very interested. I mean, one of the things I love about Paris is being able to see one or two really challenging performance a week. Uh, which is as much as I can take. I mean, you could you could go you can see two or three a day, uh, and uh, how do I gauge the quality of the performance, and not just of the organization, as you could say, of a group on stage, but of each individual's presence on stage, presence of mind on stage, and beyond presence of mind, what I call presence of spirits on stage. How do they manage to? to go to the edges of their own sense of fiction, personalities, character, and things like that, with what quality, and I would say with what psychological quality do they manage that? And I think in, at that level, if you want, Roy Hart was a genius, no question for me. I call him an ethical genius, mm. uh, amazing interpreter of gestures and moves and dreams, an incredibly insightful man. And I think that's a fabulous inheritance, which I've used all the time. I also, you know, I've also worked with and become a friend of a man called James Hillman. He gave me the philosophy of all of this <laughs> to a huge degree and allowed, allowed me to, you could say, place Roy Hart within the mindscape of a certain kind of mindscape. He took on the mantle of Jung, right? For me, he's the he's the the most interesting inheritor of Jung, yeah. Maverick, and quite often against the way Jung is used today or was used. I mean, Hillman died ten years ago or so. I wouldn't call it as esoteric because he was extremely exoteric. He wasn't. Uh, he could do what he said, you know. Yes. He didn't keep it secret and things like that. So. When I get radical, if people ask me, how do I get into your work, Enrique? I say, let me, let me see you roll on the floor and scream, and then I'll tell you if, if you can come in or not. <laughs> That's the entrance. Do you dare, if you want, go into expressive stuff, full out, you know? Yeah. yeah. The artists I like are those. Yeah. I've seen a very grainy video of your performance of the now legendary Pan, your your theater piece, I suppose, after which you have named your movement, right? Pan Theater. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pan, the god of the wild, associated with spring, fertility, sex, rustic music, impromptu. You probably no longer perform this work, right? No, I don't. No, no. It's, a, it's the pillar of your organization, yes? That theater piece that you devised? Let's say that it's the it's the theater piece that allowed me to enter my own mindscape and perform an artistic scape. The performance was called Calling for Pan. So I was kind of calling him, come on, Pan, come and help me yeah, now find, yeah, find yeah. my own expression, my own philosophy, and uh, chose the figure of Pan to help me through the first, to break into that, that, that landscape. Yeah. Mm. And he rolls on the floor and screams, definitely. Mm. <laughs> do, you, do you roll Sorry. on the floor and scream, Linda? Oh, uh, I've done a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking of what you was what you said about wanting to go into this Dionysiac uh, um, state of being because 
I met Roy Hart uh, because of an invitation to, I had an invitation to go down and see the, the back eye. And it, it so happened that simultaneously I was working on the back eye at what is now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. During those performances, I was called to the director and, and said, listen, Linda, we're very worried about your voice. We think you have something seriously wrong. And I was really upset because I had thought, I actually thought I'd gone really far in being a wild <laughs> back eye. Yes. And back aunt. I mean, what I realize now is that I'd instinctively pushed in in that production, I instinctively went into what we call broken sounds. Yes. Which are, of course, totally wild and everything against what, what was being taught at the academy at, the, at that moment. So I can understand their disarray. But when I went down to London and I, I actually didn't see the performance in the roundhouse, but I did. I was invited to a rehearsal. Impact of the sounds was extraordinary. Roy Hart's back eye. I mean, he was directing and he, he was on stage with it, but I, I never heard the human voice in anything. But mostly, I thought, my God, they're doing everything that I was told not to do. Yeah. When you hear what the voice can do. And, and it, it's, a, it's a very, for me, it goes straight into the body. I mean, I can remember feeling, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm sort of trembling here and my heart beat was going faster and, and uh, almost near tears as well. And, and really not understanding what, why, because if I'd looked at it objectively, what I was seeing, it was absolutely chaotic. One learns to be able to take in these sounds and not only to work with them and, and discover them in oneself, but also to to be able to hear the the richness and the, and the humanity and uh, and the the poetics that is possible in the human voice. Yes, which uh, which we can't. Uh, which we don't use, of course, in, in everyday life. Yes. Yeah, when you first encounter it, I'm sure it's, it's uh, all the instincts is that this is a dangerous place to go. This is a place that I could lose myself. This is a place I could go mad. Yeah? Um, funnily enough, no, I never felt, <laughs> I felt very at home. <laughs> but, you but, know, I, I was brought up the, in the, Africa, and I was used to very extreme sound in Africa, too. Yes. Already the Africans, they, they, they talk a lot louder. They live, we're living outside, you know, there's a lot more. And the, and the animals, I mean, going on safari, if you hear a lion roar, who's maybe 20 meters away from you, it's strong. Yeah. And I think there's a sort of identification in one's body. We surprise ourselves in what we're capable of when we encounter that work. I've occasionally, once or twice as a performer, sort of had those, those transcendent moments. I'm thinking of a, play, of a play that I was in, in which I was playing an absolutely evil person. And the sounds of evil that somehow came out of my body were thrilling but scary, both for me and for those listening. And my wife said to me, I have no idea where those sounds came from. 
So I've, yeah. I've sort, of, sort of tiptoed into your world, the, the Roy Hart world, uh, occasionally, even though I've led a very conventional life as a, as a teacher and, and actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think those teachers back in the Royal Academy were a little fearful of the sounds you were making, fearful for themselves yes. as well as I, I, no, for maybe maybe it affected them, but I, I think it was so far away from uh, what they had heard before. They didn't quite know how to deal with it, and I must admit that at that time the, the vocal training was was extremely classical. Yes. Yes. I mean, it so happens that now Roy Hart work is, is more adapted into the, the schools and they want it. Have you ever thought that by institutionalizing Roy Hart's rather anarchic work, there's a danger of taming it and it becoming safe and institutionalized and, and orthodox? I know you've, res- from what I've read, you've resisted the orthodoxification of Roy Hart's work and leave it, leaving room for the for the wild, the impromptu, utterly new. But any time you have a, a genuine guru, there's a danger that his or her disciples um, institutionalize the work and it, and it becomes safe and tame and prescriptive and, and orthodox. Am I making any sense here? Yeah, you're making sense. I would put a lot of provisos around this question because this is where you could say the artistic tack comes in for me. You know, this thing sounds like a joke, you know. If you want to come into my laboratory, you got to roll on the floor and scream. And I'll, I'll judge from that your capacity to throw yourself and risk yourself into work. But then, of course, that's, all, that's the raw material. I've had a long story also with uh, Dionysus. And I came to the, to, to the kind of, not a, not a conclusion, but an acknowledgement that my work is not Dionysian, in a funny way. What I call voice performance is the staging of the wildness, you could say, what you could call the wildness, but not just that, is the contrasts, is the capacity to control your changes of emotion, and to do pretty much that, to see how you enter how you create a crisis, what the crisis is made of, you know, the screaming, the cry of the crisis, and then how do you sort of rest, change voice, change mood, you could say, or comment what happened, etc. And that kind of control to me is not Dionysian. I feel Dionysian theatre, and this is where I've, I probably differ quite a lot from Roy Hart, his theatre was Dionysian in the sense that it was a horde, it was a kind of group with a very clear anchor, which was him. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's classic of Dionysus. He was calm and cool while everybody around him in mythology was going absolutely wild. And in a sense, without him, it would have been you know, expressive suicide by everyone. Well, <laughs> uh, and I feel that this idea of uh, expression, controlled expression, makes me very Apollonian, actually, in a funny way. Uh, I've written a lot about that. Yes. Keeping the distance, keeping the control. When I performed Pan, I remember in Sweden, where it had a lot of success, I remember having one discussion with somebody who was obviously very intelligent, who came to me and said, you go to the very edge of possession, you could say. 
trance, but you don't enter trance. Mm. And he obviously wanted me to be the real thing, enter trance. I says, but that's not the point of theater for me. Yeah. For me, the point is to is to be able to harvest the nature of the trance and do it without losing control, without going into a kind of second state of uh, possession. So at that level, it's, it's very subtle because on the one side, you could say Roy was incredibly controlled character, incredibly controlled. His capacity for control and intuition and observation and, and timeliness of interventions and things like that was extraordinary. But on the other side, he kept his group going in a Dionysian way. That's a very simplified way of putting it, but uh, I'm putting big provisors on, on uh, Dionysus screaming. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, you wrote uh, Roy Hart's proposal, Singing is Simple, Direct and Genius. To sing is to enact the performative transformation of a feeling, an idea, a fiction. It is also about exploring, singing, the dark side of humanity, limitations and animosities. It's a very attractive place, this dark side. Tell, tell me about this dark side. You, you, you've already told me quite a bit, but go a little further. One of my, my last performance, big performance, was called Hitler. I, I think it came to some degree to this from this Roy Hart saying at some point, I can't remember where or how, that if you don't sing Hitler, Hitler will sing you. Meaning mm. that if you don't manage to perform up to the standards of someone like Hitler, you will be cowed and you will be submissive submitted to his charisma, to his energy, to his mad ideals. Uh, I like that a lot. And I said, one day I have to perform Hitler. But the day, you know, wait, I waited uh, all my life almost. Sorry, I, did, I did about 10 years ago. And I finally found a way of, it was a visit to Hitler in the underworld. So uh, visiting Hitler and I did it with a friend photographer who took photographs of my visit to Hitler. <laughs> and Hitler mm. didn't like it. He mm. didn't want to be photographed, you could say, in decay. I enjoyed that performance tremendously. And it was for me an achievement because it taken me so long to do it. I'm reminded of, of Grotowski. One idea that was so powerful for me was the idea that the actor goes through something on behalf of us, uh, sacrifices him or herself in order that we don't have to do it. That, that, the self-sacrifice of the artist, does that mean anything to you? That you go, as you went into Hitler, perhaps, that you did it in order that we don't have to? Does that make any sense at all? I would put it the other way around. I do it in order that you do it. <laughs> No, no, I don't think that the actor is a sacrificial character. It's a critic, it's a provocator, it's a... The theatre that I like today, you know, I'm really, I mean today, what am, what am I going to go and see tomorrow and what did I see last week that impressed me? I'm extremely impressed by a woman called uh, Marlene Monteiro Freitas. She's Portuguese from Green Cape, so she's half African, half uh, Portuguese. Or it might not be half-half, but bon, she, she has, she was born in Africa 
and she has African roots. And I love her work when she gets in when she does so when she does group work, it's another story. But she is so at the same time, so wild, so grotesque, so challenging. For me, she's my favorite actor today. And she goes very far. Politically, for instance, in terms of uh, black, of slavery, you could say. She, she goes through slavery states in her performance. Attacking society, you could say. I don't think she does it on our behalf, but she's definitely sharing her rage, her historical rage of what happened to the blacks. And I, I, I think she pulls it off fantastically when she performs solo, most specially, because she puts in affect, you can, you can cry with her, you could say about what, what happened, without even referring to it. It's just by her mimics, her, her extreme, the, what she does with her own body, and she does it with marvelous artistry and, and, and thinking. I love it. You know? Sounds like that combination of the Apollonian and the Dionysian that you were speaking of. That's what we all aim for. One of the, one of the extremes that we want to bring together most clearly: the total involvement of Dionysus and the total detachment of Apollo. If you can get those two at the same time, that's it. Yeah. When we're having conversations with people in our ordinary everyday life and social encounters, are we hopelessly entrapped by convention and fail to? bring the expressiveness and depth to our conversation that you have spoken about in performance? My listeners would say, well, yeah, that's, that all sounds great, but what difference does it make to me as a non-actor? How, how will it help me live my life better, be a better conversationalist, a better person? And it's, it's very often that, very, very often that I've had worked with painters or writers or they say that oh, it just inspires me. I yes. feel it opens something. It opens something in my psyche or my imagination, which later inspires me, gives me an energy. That's really important, I think, also. It does energize a lot. People can feel a lot better. It activates very strongly in one's imagination. And this can be often reflected in people coming and saying, well, I just I haven't stopped dreaming since my last lesson. And mm. Yeah, I think it does affect your psyche enormously. So everybody should do this work, right? I mean, to be a full potentiated human being, you should, everyone should get something of this work. Well, I think so. I think it's incredibly valuable on all levels. I'm working with a, a businessman at the moment and normally when one works with businessmen, it's, it's to do with the communication and how to get your message over. And he doesn't want any of that. He adores singing and exploring. And he said, I want you to come into, into the, the, the business classes I do and work like this. But he said, what happens to me when I, when I touch these energy and these inspirations? I mean, it opens hundreds of doors for me in my mind. Yeah. So why isn't this kind of work ever on the high school curriculum, for example? Is it something that a school couldn't begin to approach because it's too dangerous or 
too liberating? There is a, a lot of fear of not controlling and very difficult to go into areas that one doesn't know. Well, it can be quite an emotional experience to do that, to suddenly find yourself touching something that which you had no idea you had before. Yes, I can imagine. I would add a couple of things here. Yeah. Echoing someone else who said something like, the soul also thinks. It was a straight attack on James Hillman by one of his renegade students. I feel that there is something about saying, the voice also thinks. Hmm. And that I find very important. So in other words, you don't need to start screaming. You can, you know, in the way in which you speak, in the ideas that you emit, you are also singing. You could say you're also choosing ideas and you're putting them out. And that's, for me, that is the other side. I don't need to go and see performances where there's a lot of screaming. I want to hear the ideas scream. I have another quote of Roy Hart, which I like very much, is basically a little essay that he wrote, which is titled, I think, How a Voice Gave Me a Conscience. Mm. That for me is insight, it's ethical, very ethical. You can enter empathy with other persons or situations or political ideas, you could say through your voice without necessarily screaming. We have many actors listening to us today. Uh -huh. most, mostly conventional commercial actors who live in a very safe, prescribed, orthodox behavioral situation. How can your work help that kind of actor, the one who's auditioning for the movie tomorrow and uh, is going to go through that kind of thing? How does that commercial actor, the commercial actor that Roy Hart started out to be apparently when he was training at RADA, but abandoned for the Wolfson ideas? Often it develops your speaking voice, your capacity to differentiate emotion and to be subtle, to be extremely sensitive. It opens interpretation. I mean, it would come out of the screaming, you know, some of our work is, is to do with whispering or sound breaking down and, and uh, which is totally on the other level. And I think the richer your voice becomes and the more able one is able to define and, and control the subtle, the subtle things for stage acting, fantastic. And then uh, I did just one day think, oh, I'm going to go into whispering and we had some amazing work on this, the most intimate, subtle sounds with text or singing. It opened a whole new landscape for me, I must admit. The longer we talk, the more attractive your world is to me. And I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we're turning on a lot of people who know nothing about Roy Hart or Pan Theatre. Give us a quick plug for how they could get some some of your training, depending on where in the world they live. There's different levers to, you could say, how we impart our work, how we share it. Some of it nowadays internationally is actually done online. We have a couple of programs which we are constantly revising and, and redefining online. And also in three languages, we do it in English, we do it in Spanish and we do it in French. Uh, I do quite often the same lecture three times, develop it in, in, in different lectures. So there's, there's master classes, there's actual classes, group classes online, 
Linda teaches one-to-one teaching, voice teaching online. And then there's quite a lot of thinking, cultural, I call it cultural studies, critical cultural studies. At the moment, for instance, I'm working towards one of our big events, or if not the, the biggest event for Pan Theater, which is called the Myth and Theater Festival in June, Ju- er, late June, early July, which is, of course, where I would tell you to come and, and share. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and there we, we put things together. We put, you could say, myth and theater, in other words, theory and practice with the perspective of mythological me- image making. And this year is like the 23 is likely to be dedicated to the theme of fetish, which would include a few people. What do you mean by fetish? Oh, well, come and find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a voice lesson online with Linda. Can, ah, I, yeah, you, can, you, I, can I book one, Linda? Absolutely. I'd be delighted. <laughs> Great. I've been teetering at the, uh, at the brink of this work for, for decades, but uh, now finally yeah. I feel I'm in it somehow in a way that I wasn't before. Wonderful. Great. You can also roll on the floor and scream online. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, the neighbors. That's a big problem. (laughs) Well, Enrique uh, and Linda, thank you so much for joining me today on In a Manner of Speaking. Thank you for the invitation. And we look forward to meeting you in live. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guests, Enrique Pardo and Linda Wise. To learn more about them and Pan Theatre and Roy Hart, and for that free extra content, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode number 59. As a postscript, Linda referred to Jenny Johnson one of Alfred Wilson's star pupils. She mentioned that Jenny could sing every role in Mozart's The Magic Flute. I was intrigued, so I went searching and found on YouTube an excerpt from a 1955 recording, which features not Jenny, but Jill Johnson, her sister, doing just that, singing excerpts from all six principal roles, from the highest soprano notes down to the lowest bass notes. I know you're dying to hear it, I further edited that YouTube recording down to this much shorter clip.
Kinderlein, Kinderlein. Astonishing, right? I took the audio clips used in today's episode from YouTube under the Copyright Doctrine of Fair Use. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook. My guest next month is Malachi O'Neill. He's a champion of the Irish language, which I was surprised and horrified to hear is on the endangered languages list. Professor O'Neill leads the fight to restore that ancient tongue to full vigour. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. Happy Holidays! <laughs>